Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the week, I'll be honest. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Thanks for coming in July. This is like the doldrums of church attendance, so I'm real proud of you all for being here this morning. Thank you. Uh, real quick, uh, this is a big week for our renovations. Uh, a new concrete floor is being poured down in there, which if you've, if you've looked, there's like channels and a hundred-year-old plumbing that's had to been taken out, and it's made me real thankful that I do what I do and not what some other people do, which isn't a bad job. I just don't, I don't think I'm fit for it, cutting concrete all day. So things should happen real fast after that in terms of uh, this new roof being built over here and the actual toilets coming in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be posting pictures of the new toilets when they come in. We've got floors coming in. and So uh, we're almost through it. Thank you guys for your patience. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, there we have people. It's almost like we think through things sometimes. If you go out of the hall and out where you came in, you'll see people with name tags that say, I can help you. Those are the people you should ask where to go because uh, you may run into some random stranger that's going to play a trick on you. I just can't vouch for everybody who's sitting around here right now. But the people who have little name tags that say, I can help you, they can help you, especially if you have to go to the bathroom. So, uh, yeah, and after that, Sunday, we've got our back-to-school bash where we'll see, welcome back, Stephen Pierce back from China. You made it. And his wife, all right, sorry. I'm just real happy to be, I haven't preached in a couple weeks, and I'm just excited to be here. Uh, Next Sunday, we've got our back-to-school bash. We'll, we'll be able to give free school supplies to a couple hundred kids. Uh, by order of me, we have better hot dogs this year. Um, I don't know if anyone was bothered by the hot dogs the last few years. I was embarrassed by our hot dogs. So we've, we've upped the quality of the hot dogs this year. And then after that starts VBS. So this is going to be a fun couple of weeks. We'll see a few hundred kids coming through our building, both uh, next Sunday night and then throughout the week. And for me, I think about our kids all the time. Uh, I have two kids, but also on a Sunday, we'll have, right now, we're averaging like around 150 kids under 12 who are a part of our church every Sunday. And which means in a couple of years, we're going to be unleashing this horde of children into the elementary school and the public school, you know. And I think a lot about uh, how are we going to love our kids? What are we doing to prepare them? Uh, so I pray for our kids a lot. I've got a lot of hope. And uh, one of my favorite things to read about are initiation rituals. Uh, and it's crazy. Every culture, pretty much except for white Western American culture, has these rituals or rites of passage that they'll take their kids through to mark these transition points. And for thousands of years, everybody's done this. But we're very smart and we're very sophisticated and we don't do this now. And, and then we get to our 30s and have all of these men and women who don't know what they're good at, don't know if anyone loves them, don't know if they can survive in life, all of these deep insecurities, and wondered, are these things related at all? So I read lots of books about initiation rites. Started reading one last week called Adam's Return by this kind of far out there Catholic guy. He's really smart though, but he probably wouldn't like our church very much, which makes me feel kind of good about reading him, right? Like, because I'm taking his stuff. And in it, he's got five lessons. This is about fathers and sons. He's got five lessons that fathers need to teach their sons to prepare them for manhood. And they're just so sobering. Uh, the very first one, you can tell this guy's not trying to sell books. Uh, the very first lesson he says that fathers need to teach their sons is that life is hard. Life is hard. And some of you know this. We call that being in your 30s, right? Like you wake up, 
You've been paying your bills. It's not cool to pay your bills anymore. Initially, right after college, it's kind of fun to pay bills or whatever. When you get your first job and you start spending some money. I was thinking about this morning, my first real job, uh, I bought an Amazon Prime account and I thought I was, I just thought I had arrived. Um, Another way to put this, uh, that life is hard. Another way to put this lesson is that life is not fair. Um, It's just not fair. And we can complain about that. Uh, We can go to therapy over that. We can pray about that, and it won't change the reality that rain falls on the wicked and the righteous alike, as the scriptures would say, or maybe you've just experienced it. You've done everything right, and it didn't work out for you. Life is not fair. Our children have to know this. Um, Maybe some of you know somebody who hasn't learned this, and they're still flailing around in their 30s or 40s or 50s, Uh, like a 12 or 13-year-old who's not getting his way. Uh, And what's funny, when when we're in a culture that doesn't do a very good job of instructing our children on the realities of life, we find adults who, in a lot of ways, are just like children, just with bigger bodies and larger bank accounts. Uh, So it's not only our children need to learn lessons like life is hard, we need to learn these lessons too. Uh, Life is not fair. I've been considering some of these lessons from this book in light of the Fruit of the Spirit series, and this one's really bothered me because you don't see fairness as a fruit of the Spirit. And I was like, well, surely there's got to be a bunch of verses on how fair God is, right? And so I've got my big, like the big exhaustive concordance, not the small concordance that they sell at Barnes & Noble, like the exhaustive one that's like a hundred bucks, every word in the Bible and everywhere it shows up. Good luck finding very many verses about God being fair. The overwhelming message of the Bible in terms of God's character is not that he's fair. It will not tell you that he's fair, but it will tell you that he's good. Here's just a couple examples. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. Psalm 25, Psalm 100. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Psalm 86. Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. The Bible does not give you a picture of a God who is fair. It gives you a God who is good. And the promise is that when we are united to Jesus by faith, that goodness of God that's so central to his very character and nature— fills us and will will overflow out of us into the lives of other people. So when we we think about this phrase, though, or the fruit of the Spirit, goodness, it's such a familiar word that it's almost lost meaning. He's such a good boy. What a good little dog he is. That's good ice cream. What does it really mean? What is a good Christian? So to answer that question, I want to share one of my favorite stories from the Bible from the life of Jesus. Uh, Because definitions are helpful, but there's just, there's a few scenes in here that I've been praying all week that they would just get burned into your mind so vividly. So here's what's going on. Uh, Jesus has resurrected and he's shown up and appeared to his disciples twice. On the one hand, they're happy because he's not dead. It's good news. But they're still terribly confused. What does this mean for us now? If you read the accounts after the resurrection, there's still these long periods of waiting. What's Jesus up to? What's he going to tell us to do? And so, like a group of good Hoosiers, 
Instead of dealing with their confusion, they go back to work, right? They just get busy. We could talk about this or we could just build the fence in the backyard or whatever. So Peter and the boys, they go back out fishing. That's what a lot of them did for a living. They're waiting on Jesus and they go fishing. They're up all night and they don't catch anything. Uh, uh, This is just so funny to me. It's okay if you guys don't think it's funny. I just really think it's funny. Some man from the shore says, throw your net on the other side. Which if you, I have some good friends who are fishermen and you just don't tell fishermen what they're doing wrong after a day of failure. That's like the surefire way to get like, uh, I don't know, Miller Lite thrown at your forehead or something like that, right? Like that's just not how you do it. And so, but these guys are like, whatever, man. And they throw their nets over the other side and they, they pull in more fish than they know what to do with. So we, I want to pick up the story right after they've hauled in this net-breaking amount of fish, after a whole night of failure. Then the disciple Jesus loved, which is an awesome way to refer to yourself in the history books that you've written, right? That's John. Me, or the disciple Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, side note, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. This is not just some dude giving fishing instructions, right? This is Jesus. He's shown up again, shouting at them from the shore. And Peter is so excited. Like, you got to love Peter here, right? Like, there's sometimes, we dog him a lot, but you got to love him. He's going to outswim the boat back to shore because he's so excited to see Jesus. But think about for a second the situation that Peter is in. This isn't the first time he's seen Jesus after the resurrection, but he's about to talk to Jesus one-on-one, be spoken to directly, for the first time since Jesus died. And, and the book of John tells us what their last conversation was like. The last one-on-one, Jesus and Peter talking, what Peter said to him. So in John 13, Peter said to Jesus, why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. I'll take a bullet for you, Jesus. I'll do anything for you, Jesus, right? This, it's kind of this like uh, summer camp fervor prayer. He's so pumped up. He's on fire for Jesus right now. I will do anything for you, Jesus. And Jesus totally calls him out on his bravado, on his, on his bluff. Jesus says to him, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Enough of this, you'll die for me stuff, Peter. Wait, wait till you see what tomorrow brings for you, man. Three times, you'll act like you don't even know who I am. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus was right. He's God. He knew it was coming. Peter three times said he didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't, I don't know the man, Peter says. And from that moment until this moment, the Bible is silent about Peter's relationship with Jesus. But I think it's worth our consideration. What would, it, if, what would it have felt like to be Peter? Do you, do you think Peter lost any sleep after Jesus died? You think Peter lost any sleep after Jesus was resurrected? What's he going to say to me? What's going to happen now? You you think maybe he had a hard time looking Jesus in the eyes? 
I, I just know for me, like, I've done dumb stuff. I, I've betrayed God. I've turned my back on him in many ways. And then you go and try to pray afterwards, and it's awkward and uncomfortable. You feel like you probably shouldn't even be there. If Peter had done this to you, what would you say Peter deserved? What would be fair for Peter? For me, at the very least, I would want to make sure Peter understood what he really did, right? You understand why this is such a problem, Peter? Do you understand why this hurt me? I'd certainly want to make sure he knew that I was hurt, that this was unacceptable, that this was a betrayal. It can't happen again. If you and I want to be friends, if you expect to be close to me, this cannot go on. Never again, Peter. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Please pay attention to what Jesus does. When they got there, They found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Peter gets out of the the shore. The boat pulls up and Jesus is making breakfast. Should be awkward. This is a strange picture to me. And maybe we can just say, okay, you got to eat, right? Like everybody's got to eat. We got to eat before we have the intense conversation. But what does Jesus actually say to Peter? I want us to get ready now. These are the first words that Peter says, or Jesus says directly to Peter after Peter's betrayed him, broken his promise to him, denied him. This is what Jesus has to say to Peter. Bring some of the fish you've just caught. <laughs> Bring me fish. <laughs> Jesus is not fair here. He's hungry, apparently. But he's not fair. There's a beautiful detail in verse 11. says they caught 153 fish. That's how you know they're real fishermen. Because real fishermen count and measure all of their fish, right? 153. John, 153, man. Write it down, you know? I guess that's funny. It's just for me. Lots of my jokes are just for me. You can ask my wife. Uh-huh. Jesus talks to Peter again, though, right after this. Surely he's going to get him now, right? Surely he's going to get him now. Jesus says to him next, come have some breakfast. <laughs> so finally, with full bellies, Jesus asks Peter a question. Is there a part of you that really wants Jesus to go after Peter here? Like, Jesus, could you please at least find a way to work in a how could you? Or at least a I can't believe you would? Listen to this conversation. Got the whole thing up here. After breakfast, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. See the same confidence he had? I'll die for you. Of course I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. 
Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Can't help but wonder after that third time, says Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him a third time, if Peter ever made the connection, wondered what was it like for Jesus when I denied him the third time. Peter denies him three times. Jesus asks him this piercing question, do you love me, three times. So make you uncomfortable that Jesus doesn't want to know if Peter's sorry. He doesn't seem interested if Peter really gets it or not. He wants to know if Peter loves him. Jesus is not fair, but he's good. We see the sheer lack of fairness on the part of Jesus in this story, and we see the beautiful splendor of his goodness. So what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is good? What's going on in this story? The first first thing that strikes me here is Goodness is a commitment uh, to what's true and what's beautiful. Uh, True and beautiful are big biblical words. Um, They're worth unpacking a little bit. Uh, True, it certainly refers to what's right versus what's wrong, or what's a fact versus what's a lie. But in in the Bible, it's a little bit more of a blue-collar word. Anybody ever been to Home Depot and went to buy some two-by-fours? You can't buy the warped one, right? You got to find one that's true, that's straight, that's level. In in the Bible, the the concept of true is more like finding a two by four that's straight and level. It has to do with integrity. It it has to do with consistency. A goodness describes a life that's true. What you see is what you get. So you're not one way at work and then one way at home and then one way with friends, and one way with your children. Your life is honest. Yes, in the sense that you don't lie, but also that there is an openness, there is a vulnerability, there there is a plainness about your life. What you see is what you get. It's honest, and it's consistent. Just think about how you, you know this plays out in the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't preach love and forgiveness and compassion to the crowds, and then go rub his best friend's face in it. He was the same way at the crowds as he was with his friends. To be true is to have a consistent aim to do what's right, what pleases the Lord. And, and I think this is what it means to be beautiful in the scriptures. Uh, beauty is a great synonym for the glory of God, which is a huge word that's hard to understand. This is the goal of our transformation, to experience the glory of God and become like him. To be beautiful is to be like God. This doesn't mean physically attractive or having whatever, this totally hot bod that you see on magazines or whatever. To be beautiful is to be like God. 
uh, when someone is consistent, when it's, when it's honest, when it's reliable, it's beautiful. And this is what God is like. Goodness shows up in our life as working to make ourselves and others beautiful. This is what empowered Jesus to endure betrayal and even the cross itself. He was good. He was committed to our transformation. He was far more interested in Peter being loved and transformed than he was in Peter saying the right things. This was God's mission, and Jesus was true to it until the very end. Goodness is a commitment to what's true and beautiful in our own life, but also in the life of others. And if you take this a little step further, because those are big abstract words, let's get a little more concrete. What is goodness? Goodness prefers generosity over fairness. And this is where I think most of us are going to get uncomfortable. This is where I've been uncomfortable all week. Throughout the Bible, goodness is linked to generosity, specifically to God's abundance, going above and beyond, going the second mile. And so listen to me. Whether you realize it or not, you want God to be good. You really don't want him to be fair. Do you know yourself well enough to know what you really deserve in life? Your heart is twisted. Your motives are tainted with sin. And if you don't know this is true of you yet, take some time and just think through your life. Have you ever thought or done something you know you shouldn't have? Have you ever used someone for your own personal gain, dehumanized another, making them an object of your pleasure, an object of your achievement or advancement? Have you ever stopped and thought, what would you get if God were fair with you? What would you get? Into that fear, that anxiety, that question should be terrifying for any human being who's moderately awake to their own life and what they've done. The, the discrepancy between their thoughts and their actions, their words and their heart, into that fear, we get glorious promises like this throughout the scriptures. Psalm 103 says, He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. Can you imagine what it would be like for God to be harsh with you? Maybe you know what it's like for a mom or a dad to be harsh with you or a spouse to be harsh with you. And I've seen the devastation that brings into people's lives. Can you imagine what it would be like for the God of the universe to be harsh with you? To be like God, though, to have his character manifest itself in our lives through his spirit is to prefer generosity over fairness. The cross of Christ is the clearest example of this. God doesn't punish you for your sins because he's punished Christ for them. God, God doesn't simply forgive our sins, though, which would be enough. 
If all we got out of the cross was the forgiveness of sins, that would be praiseworthy. But, but God doesn't stop there. The cross, forgiveness of sins, is not fair. And God would have been exceedingly kind and glorious if, if he just stopped there, if that was all the work that Christ did on the cross. He doesn't simply forget our sins, though. He sets us free from them. He doesn't simply set us free. He adopts us into his family. The scriptures say we were enemies of God. He wipes us clean of our rebellion. And then he says, now you're part of my family. I'm not going to call you slaves or enemies. I'm going to call you sons and daughters. But he doesn't stop there either. He unites us with Christ, filling us with his own spirit. He says, when I look at you, I see the life of Jesus. You are robed in the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the beauty of Christ. And, and he doesn't even stop there. He fills us with his spirit so we can go and participate in his mission of reconciling relationships, restoring people to God and one another. To be like God is to prefer to be generous rather than fair. Over and over and over, God goes so far beyond fairness. What does it mean to be generous? It means cooking breakfast for your friend after he's betrayed you. How have you responded in those situations where someone's totally backed out on a promise to you? They've totally let you down. It's totally fallen through. And you find yourself wanting to redefine years of relationship. How does Jesus respond to that? He cooks the man breakfast. It means asking him if he still loves you rather than rubbing his face in his failures. Life is hard. Some of you know it better than others. It's filled with loss and disappointment. The invitation for the Christian is not to be happy clappy. It's not to act like nothing ever bothers us. And it's certainly not for us to be fair. The invitation for the Christian is to be good, to be generous, to give more than you think you should, to extend grace when it feels threatening. So take a moment. What would that look like for you? Who are you trying to be fair with today? Who are you trying to get back at? Who do you want to make sure gets what they deserve? I don't know, I don't know what to tell you in every one of those situations. But when I'm in those kinds of situations, I can't help but think of Jesus cooking breakfast. What would that look like for us? This isn't something we muster up. It's not a new discipline to master. This is a fruit of the Spirit, which, which means it's a product of our relationship with Jesus. And so I think it's fitting that, that we close by being reminded that all, all goodness is rooted in love. 
God isn't abstractly good. He's always good in the particular, in concrete ways. So how do you think Peter felt when he saw Jesus breaking bread by a fire on the shore? He's swimming, and I can't, I mean, it doesn't really say if he beat the boat there or not, but you ever swam in a sweatshirt? You know, imagine swimming in a shoulder-to-toe sweatshirt. That's hard work. Pops his head out, wiping the salt water out of his eyes. What's he going to do? Is he going to lightning bolt me? And he sees Jesus is cooking breakfast. Maybe he's not so mad. That's what I'd be thinking if I was Peter. Maybe he's not so mad at me. What about when he sees Jesus' mouth getting ready to speak? Here we go. And Jesus says, maybe some of them fish. He's going to eat with me? And, and then the piercing questions. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Peter experienced the goodness of God. God's particular love for him in the midst of his own failures. And he was profoundly different after this. We don't pursue goodness to please God or achieve something. We, we pursue goodness, we express goodness to others because Jesus has been good to us. Or if you need a verse, we love because he first loved us. Jesus' goodness to us is rooted in his love for us, which means our goodness to others is rooted first and foremost in our love for Jesus. Some of you have a real hard time extending goodness to people because you just don't like people all that much. I get that. What's it's a fruit of the Spirit, not, not a fruit of your love for those people who don't live life as good as you, right? We, we express goodness out of our love for Christ. So I'm assuming I'm not the only one who had a hard week this week. I was talking to the band afterwards, so I know I'm, or before, I'm, I know I'm not the only one who's had a hard week. And I'm guessing that next week is going to be tough too. <laughs> you know, I'm running like 800 weeks in a row of hard weeks. Life is hard. Uh, as we walk into the hardships and difficulties this week, I want you to reflect on Christ's love for you. How, how have you experienced his goodness to you? How have you experienced his generosity to you? When has he given you far more than you deserved. If you have no idea what to say, you can say the cross, and that is true and glorious, and we won't stop talking about it. But if you, if you would be willing to look a little more closely at your life or ask the Lord to open your eyes, you will see how his kindness, his goodness, his generosity pursues you over and over and over, even in the darkest times of life. Allow his love to inform and transform the way you love others. Let's be a people marked by goodness because we're deeply aware of the goodness that God has shown us. And so we gather every week to ground ourselves in this love. This is not something we muster up. This is not a new spiritual discipline where we're going to go out and we're really going to get it this week. We need to experience Christ's love over and over and over again. And as we do, this will flow out into our lives. And so we ground ourselves the way he taught us to by remembering that on the night that he was betrayed, 
on the night that his friends couldn't stay up and pray with him, on the night his close friend sold him out to the authorities, the night before Peter would pretend like he didn't even know him. Jesus looked at these people. He held up a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it. It's the part we skip over so often. Even in the midst of knowing what was coming for him, Jesus took a loaf of bread and thanked God for his provision. He took a loaf of bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal was over, he took a cup of wine, which is not here. It looks like these down here, if you can see. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. This is what seals your relationship with God, he said. It's not our performance. It's not our achievement. It's Christ's blood shed for us. This is what forgives us of our sin, what cleanses us, what adopts us into the family of God and enables us to be filled with his spirit. If you're here and you're not a Christian, life is hard. We know life is hard. There's a way for you to experience the goodness of God in ways that I think you experience it now, um, but nothing compares to the presence of Christ living inside of you, a way that allows you to be free from the rat race, the trap of trying to get what you deserve, of trying to make sure everyone else gets what they deserve. Uh, there's a way to be free from that bitterness, that anger that is just boiling inside of you all the time. And that's found in trusting Christ. Can you believe in love like this, in generosity like this? Are you willing to receive it? If so, the invitation for you is to follow Jesus. Learn what that means. If you don't believe that, if you still have questions, we ask that you not participate in communion if you don't believe what it symbolizes. If you are a Christian, just take a moment and ask God to remind you of ways that he's been generous to you before coming forward. And then as you're ready, our tradition is to come forward. We've got stations in the back as well. Rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. And we've got gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.